Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing life and work and creativity. With the pandemic, a lot of people are adding homeschooling to that mix. So my guests this fall will be talking with me about exactly what this kind of juggling means. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Because it's COVID broadcasting rules, you may hear the occasional snort or light paw noises. And that is my co-host, a very cute miniature schnauzer called Manette. I'll put her photo on my website, Working 9 to Thrive, and feel free to send her a photo there or on Facebook at 9 to Thrive. On this show, we talk about management, mindset, parenting, self-regulation, and everything in between. And I want to remind you that all the things you hear about in one area will make the other things easier. So everything you hear about managing taking care of your own creativity will inform you in managing your kids' time and managing your team at work, their time. Everything will make the other things easier. It's called domain shifting, and it's fantastic, and it's part of the mindset that homeschooling really supports, which is everything counts. So when you find out something new, about better ways to manage your work time, that can be used in your home life and vice versa. If you're having a hard time, or you're worried about having a hard time, or you just want to learn new ways of doing things, well, that's what we do here on this show. A little later, we'll have part one of my talk with Dr. Jolie Hamilton, who's been a single parent homeschooler to homeschooling seven kids while at various times running her own business, working, getting her undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, and a million other things as well. She's got a lot of reflective and practical insights into the work and rewards of homeschooling, making boundaries, and time constraints. Before we do that, though, I want to take a little bit of time and talk about how we talk about each other and how we talk to each other, because our language is a reflection of the way we think. And if it isn't, who are we trying to fool? What comes out of our mouth, unless we're reading someone else's lines, is a reflection of what we believe. And what we believe is what we think practiced over and over. So the first thing that I want to address is the use of the word no. And it's corollary don't. We use that with children. It's one of the first words they hear because they're into everything. They want to find out everything. They are unsafe around many, many things. So one of the first things they hear is no. And that's followed very quickly on with don't. Don't go over there. Don't pick that up. Don't put that down. Don't. There's all these things that we say to kids. And I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what's your outcome when you use the word no or don't with your kid? Because here is how their brains work. Here's how their, the cognitive process of their brains works. First of all, they're very, very small when they first start hearing this. So asking them to hold a huge cognitive load is asking them to fail. You're not actually giving them the conditions for success. 
Because here's what has to happen with a kid who's told no. The kid is holding a wine glass that it found. And you say, don't pick that up. Well, they're holding it. And what they hear, they're just new to this language thing. They've only been doing it for a couple of years. So what they hear very clearly and process very clearly, as we all do when we're distracted from the thing at hand, they hear the second half of what you said very clearly. The second half of don't pick that up is pick that up. And a smart kid looks at the thing in their hand and says, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I wanted to pick it up. I'm holding it. And someone just yelled, pick that up. And then they have to take the mental gymnastics and the time to backtrack back to you using the word don't. In the meantime, you've gone forward in time and are feeling very reasonable to be demanding that they obey you, that they listen to you, that they be a good listener. That is now impossible for them to do. You've made this terrible, terrible setup for a new language learner and a new thinker and a pretty recent human being to hold on to forward time reinforcement of what you didn't want them to do, hold that glass, and backwards, don't. And in the meantime, you're now getting angry at them, maybe repeating it. So now you're putting them under stress. They know they're displeasing you on some level. They do not know why for the longest time. And now you've formed an opinion of them as being resistant or defiant or some or naughty or some other kind of conclusion. And the relationship in those few minutes has gone from a kid who was exploring and very pleased with themselves, not knowing any better, to a soured relationship where they could not have done any better. The reason they couldn't have done any better is because as grown-ups, we don't set them up for success because it takes us pulling our heads out of what was done to us, what was said to us, behavior that was done to us, the expectations of what was done to us, the language of what was done to us, the social language. This is not anything you're ever going to see dealt with on a TV show or any other place. You have to understand it, find it out, learn it, come across it, usually late, and try to change how you now deal with these situations. And then it requires being mindful of these situations, which when you're exhausted, now you knew better and you didn't. So then you beat yourself up. So there's a negative spiral there too. Try to be aware. Once you realize that a kid is not responding in the way you'd like them to respond, backtrack yourself first and ask yourself, did I give this child any actual information about what I wanted them to do? So if they've picked up a glass and you're saying, don't pick it up, and they're looking at it and saying, pick it up. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Oh, wait, now they're mad. Oh, wait, now it's, I've done something wrong and I don't know why. Oh, there was a don't. 
but now it's don't drop it. All of these things. Now you've just said drop it. The piece that they can hear, the clearest is the second half of what comes out of your mouth. And that's true for a long time. So if you want your kids to cooperate, if you want fewer fall apart, fewer temper tantrums, if you because temper tantrums happen when a kid is discouraged, if you want a better collaborative, successful relationship with small kids, start telling them what you want. Hold on tight to the glass. Put the glass back on the table. Hands off the glass. Whatever it is you want to do, start training yourself to use the positive voice when talking with kids. Not necessarily because you're all sunshine and sweetness and light, not to be inauthentic, but because what you actually want them to do is what you actually want them to do. So stop telling them what you don't want them to do. Here is a perfect example of domain shift. This works with adults. We all have times when we are immersed in our work, immersed in our thoughts, immersed in our music, immersed in our games, in our show, in our, in our cooking, whatever it is we're immersed in. And somebody asking for our attention has pulled us out of that immersion. And we do not hear that first bit. Now, as adults, we are way better and way faster at backtracking to try to figure out what the don't was before it. But in the meantime, whoever is trying to express themselves has in some way profoundly failed because you haven't told this person what is bothering you. There's two parts to this for adults. One is if you really need to have a conversation with older kids, teenagers, other adults, subordinates, team members, anybody else. If it's a serious conversation and you want to talk about them doing something that you'd like to stop or change behavior, there's no reason you should be doing it on the fly because it is rarely a successful interaction. Instead, give them a heads up. I have some things I've been thinking about with the condition of the living room and I got to talk to you about it after dinner. Think, be thinking about that or the state of the house or the way that you leave the car whenever you're done driving it. Whatever the thing is, give people, give adults a little bit of warning that you're going to talk about something serious. And then when you do talk about it, say what you want. What is it you want? I want the gas tank filled up. I want the cans taken out of the car. I want the windows windshield washed, whatever those things are that you want to have done, ask yourself. That is a piece of communication that will serve you in every single thing that you do, but it will also make for a very successful environment for relationships to grow. Another thing that vents our relationships or undermines our relationships with our kids in particular is the language of bad-mouthing them. It is, I'm honored to talk Mac about kids. And and I'm not talking from some moral high ground here. I know I'm saying you, it's the royal you, but it's really we, the royal we, because this is something that I had to learn and it was very hard one. It was really, really difficult. I felt so justified in giving myself a break from being 
on with the kids and I felt justified talking about them until I realized the ways in which it wasn't helping the situation. It wasn't helping me. It wasn't helping anybody at all. I'm going to broaden that to even the sort of thing where at the end of summer, every cartoon, every sitcom has these parents saying, I can't wait till they go back to school again. I can't wait till the teacher gets them off our hands. It feels really harmless. And I'm sure there are many kids who don't really track it. And it's, and it's basically harmless, maybe. But it sets up the kids in your own eyes, because again, how we talk is a reflection of how we think and how we feel. It sets up kids in our own eyes as people we fundamentally don't like to have around. And the way to kind of decide whether what you're about to say is going to feel like that to somebody, including to yourself is to ask yourself, if a coworker said this about me, would I go to the stairwell and cry? Or would I get really angry and get in the car and be like, I am just going to quit this stupid job if they all hate me? If they said, I can't wait until he's out of here, ugh, would you feel like having a relationship, a, a real relationship, a cooperative relationship, with that person again, would you feel able to create in that person's presence? Would you feel able to share concerns with them? Or did they just set up this climate of mistrust? It is fine to have venting sessions under very certain circumstances, primarily therapy, because that's a place where you can start working out solutions to this. But if there's anything that we should be dragging back into current ways of talking about each other, it's if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Write it in your journal, your worries, your yours about missteps. And even as you do it in your journal, be aware that the more you double down on the narrative, more the more attention and focus and quite frankly, love you put into a narrative of being around people that you fundamentally dislike or that you have this or hostility toward that doesn't get any better that doesn't make it any better it's understandable it's human but you are not going to improve the narrative and you're not going to improve the real-time situation by spending a lot of time discussing how awful it is. One handy way to think about this is don't complain unless you have a solution for it. Don't complain unless you have a proposal and are soliciting solutions to it. Not don't complain. There are many things to complain about, but don't complain in a way that's just pounding nails into the coffin of your relationship. The long game in parenting, and parenting is a long game, is to have these people in your life on some level for the rest of it. People who get together in a, in a friendly and enjoyable manner for visits instead of just 
the nightmare rehashing of every injustice that ever happened. And the way you build that is now every single one of these things is a Lego. And so whenever it's possible to shortcut that, when you're hanging out with friends, with other parents, and you're doing this thing, when you realize that everyone's bad-mouthing their kids, it gets very difficult because you get into this point where you're like, well, I wanted to join and connect. I don't want to please everybody. But also, this is damaging. So it's worth trying to think about having some back pocket phrases about just changing the subject or indulging for a minute and then saying, but you know what? That just gets me down. What's everybody doing for Thanksgiving? Anything that you can do to kind of derail a narrative that constantly gets dragged down into the sewer, because that is going to affect how you see the people around you, because we construct each other as much as anything else. The other thing to bear in mind about this, in case you badmouth other people, do not feel good about themselves. So the other thing to realize about this is if you are doing this, if you are changing the narrative about how you see other people and doing this sort of reflection back about kids you don't want to spend any time with or, or wait to get rid of in some way, that says nothing about your kids subjectively. It says everything about your relationship with yourself, that you feel inadequate, that you don't feel supported, that you don't feel successful in what you're doing. So that's something to keep in mind, too, that you're sort of, at that point, leaking insecurity all around you. And that should be a red flag, certainly a deep pink flag, that you do need some assistance, some help, some support and need to reach out. And sometimes it means a break. And sometimes it means sleep. And sometimes it means finding out whether you've got a sleep disorder. And sometimes it means medication. And sometimes it means therapy. But it definitely means something. All of these things are going to help you manage everyone around you. And at least as importantly as everyone around you, you, for success. So next up, we have Dr. G. Hamilton, and she is absolutely fantastic. I had a terrific chat with her. And this is part one of our conversation. Part two will be next week. Thanks for coming on the show, Jolie. Thanks for having me. I love talking about this subject. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So maybe uh, start out by telling me how old your kids are. Okay. Well, they're currently, right at this moment, 20, 18, 17, 15, 14, 14, and 13. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That is, you've got a almost a baseball team. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how many are all of them homeschooled? Well, over the years, different configurations have been homeschooled. I've had anywhere from one to seven homeschooling at any one given time. Um, I've only had one year of just one. It was last year. I actually thought I was sort of wrapping up my homeschooling time. And then this happened. So I was like, well, that's over because now I'm back to having four homeschooled. And I, uh, uh, the oldest two are in college handling their own, their own things. So there's just one in public school currently. Okay. And yeah, it's it's always different, you know, year to year. It's just we've flowed with it because I don't feel like it has to be a one size fits all. Right. 
Right. Well, so first I'm actually going to ask, this is a little different than I intended to do, but since you've had kids who are both in school of some kind and homeschooled, can you talk a little bit about the transition to that? Because I know a lot of people are worried that if they opt out of the sort of mimicking school at home, that their kids will have a harder time integrating when they go back. How have you found that? Well, I was admittedly pretty nervous the first time we had a kid go into the public system and he was heading into fourth grade and that that seemed sort of jarring. And Mm. the first few months were unusual, certainly just getting used to getting up in the morning, things like that. But it was surprisingly straightforward. And then when two others started first grade, the same thing, they, they, they hopped in and then they just now hopped out. And the mm-hmm. biggest thing that we had to make space for is that there's like a three to six month period of time where you're adjusting to any transition. Mm. And so I think just making space for the fact that it will be a little, it will feel a little awkward. You know, humans tend to not love transitions, right? letting it be awkward and, and that's okay. But also remembering that there is no one... <laughs> perfect answer. So you just stay in the like, well, it's not going to be perfect here. It's not going to be perfect at home. It's not going to be perfect (laughs) at school and let it be and, and just go with it. Yeah. And as far as catching up or anything like that, we've never seen an issue, including the ones who waited all the way till college and just jumped right into college at 16. Yeah. They, kids are remarkably not just resilient, but also flexible in ways that we can't, we often don't give them credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any trouble with any teachers in any of those reentries? Was that a struggle no. at all? You know what? They were great. In fact, the teachers that we worked with were generally curious about what we'd been doing. But the, well, the bottom line was the kids were gracious and fairly eager to learn what they needed to do different. So they were they were very well received by their by their teachers and the peers. There is this thing, right? And I think that everything will change now because Mm -hmm. the word homeschool is now in the common vernacular. Mm -hmm. Some of the kids didn't get it. And so there'd be a bit of rockiness about like, well, are you, are you odd? Are you different? Are you awkward? Because you're homeschooled. And you know, the the kids prove pretty soon, pretty quickly that they're not. In fact, they're just like all the other kids. But now it's fascinating because everybody's, everybody's in the same storm. You know, so we're we're all just learning what it means to remote school or homeschool or distance school or unschool. Yeah, I think it's going to really be very different going forward. This won't be. That's a lovely reflection is that there has been a cheap storyline instead of building a character. They sort of say, well, that person was homeschooled and therefore there's this big gap in what they know. It's going to be kind of fun to throw that one out in the garbage because. Yeah. (laughs) The socially awkward homeschool story is just hysterical for me because the four kids who have been home the longest in our in our household are extremely socially adept. Like then they're very much the outgoing children from here. (laughs) Um, And and it's it's just ironic that it's it the shyer ones have actually been the ones in public school. I don't. That's just hardwired India, right? Yeah, go figure. That's not homeschool. I often thought to myself and helped my mindset, but I also told a couple of teachers that had a hard time with this at various times, treat my kids like they're foreign exchange students. Yeah. They've been abroad for a year, say, 
yeah. different school system. It's still, you know, it's all yeah. fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. I, I love the curiosity of the teachers. A lot of them are very much like, well, this is different. I don't know what that's about. And usually they're relieved to find that, in fact, it, yeah. the kids just want to be included. So wherever they are, they just want to be part of whatever's going on. Right. That's easy, right? Right. Well, you mentioned unschooling before. Did you structure? Have you structured your homeschooling? Do you structure your homeschooling in any way? I've followed a bunch of different paths. I, I was one of those really invested in learning about pedagogical theory. And I was just really, really into um, learning about learning when my kids were very, very little. So mm. go all the way back to the early aughts. And I was into Waldorf methods and um, I followed Anki homeschooling. And I really developed what I called a rhythm. I wouldn't say it was a, a structure and it definitely didn't look like public school. And in fact, we delayed formal academics in favor of things like art, household rhythms, cooking together, all like nature walks and nature programs and project-based learning, like getting into something interesting, learning to knit when they were five, six, seven, eight, things like that. We focused on that when they were young. And honestly, I didn't worry about whether they could read until, you know, somewhere between eight and 11, depending on the kid. That never caused us any trouble. It was fine. So we were more on the unstructured side when, when you think about rigorous academics early. Right. On the other hand, as the kids got older, by the time they enter freshman year, what we would traditionally think of as freshman year, so I think of it as their 14th year, I expect them to be able to pick and choose from among different curriculums by reading the, the websites, um, to be able to decide what areas they want to focus on and to co-create with me a learning experience that then by the following year, they can practically create themselves. And the year after that, they take some placement exams and off to college they go. So I have found that structure is something that you just, you need to step into mm. bit by bit. It doesn't need to be hyper stru structured, nor do you need to necessarily have absolutely no structure. Because some of my kids, oh, left to their own devices, they wouldn't do anything. <laughs> they just didn't want to. So, so, you know, we had to meet each of their needs. Some of them needed to have a checklist. Some of them really didn't because they were super motivated on their own. Right, right. And as part of that, you sort of touched into this idea of family management. Yeah. How much hands, I know it, re it really changes according to the age and the kid. Did you gather once a week as a family to talk out anything like this? Did you sort of ad hoc it a little more than that? Yeah, you know, so our family went through a bunch of changes because we, when I was, when I had very, very little kids, I was home more and I was running some online businesses and most of the homeschooling, if not 100% of it fell to me. Mm. And then um, when they were between the ages of two and 10, I divorced and there was a total restructuring of our family. And now you have co-parents and new schedules. So the meetings actually had to get more formal because we needed to actually discuss. Right. What you know, my kids went, um, you know, we talk about whether there needs to be structure. Well, for my four biological children, we're going between my house and their father's house half the week, you know, and, and somehow figuring out their school. And it, it was just it was it was something we had to figure out how to communicate it about. So, yeah, at first there were weekly meetings. And those ebbed into quarterly meetings, ebbed into yearly meetings because we just knew what we were doing and it was fine. Mm. 
Um, and because the kids took on an increasing amount of responsibility for their own learning, which I don't think anybody should expect a child who's just come out of the public system to just be able to do that. Right. Not reasonable. But these kids had been, had come up right through it. Now, on the other hand, I have two seventh graders who just, you know, it was a pandemic. Boom, they're home. And yeah, I mean, I helped them craft a curriculum set that they wanted to do and then a checklist that felt fun for them, some wake up and go to and go to bed times that felt good for them around homeschooling. And that took probably twice or three times weekly check-ins about how's this working? Is this working? Right. Do you need an extra week off because this is actually too much? It's, you know, too much change all at once. We gave it some time to breathe, really. Right. Well, let me back up a little bit. I think it's worth saying that the estimated on-task time in the state of Massachusetts is approximately two hours of focused learning time. And I know that because that's how many hours they'd send a tutor to your house if your kid had some kind of medical issue. But it's also approximately the same amount of time that Olympians, Olympic athletes use. It's also about the same amount of time child actors use. Child actors is sometimes up to three how much time would you say, again, I know it ebbs and flows over the years, but, you know, maybe an average for elementary and middle and high school, how much time of yours is specifically the homeschooling part in a given, I'm going to actually say day, week and month, because I know it, it yeah. changes. It's super flexible. It's so flexible. And and I think the flexibility is actually what freaks people out at the beginning. Mm. So. I think of the structure, the structure is for mom, dad, caregiver, babysitter, grandma, whoever's, ste- whoever's stepping up to do the day to day. I'm in the house while this child's learning sort of role. Right. right? And so that structure with the hands on time that you're talking about that in elementary school. Oh, goodness. It took me longer because I had so many different grades. That mm. certainly upped the ante. If you have a lot of different grades and a lot of different learning types and a lot of different interests, yeah, I actually might have been busy four or five hours a day. But that said, we're talking about seven different directions. And I was committed <laughs> to providing that. It's not what I would recommend ever. How much time did I spend with uh, on point, on point, like holding them to, okay, we're going to do this activity. In elementary school, somewhere between 30 minutes and three hours. And okay. then, um, and that included, though, circle time, singing together, um, going on a nature walk. You know, so when I'm talking about structured, I'm not saying sit down at the kitchen table because mom's going to teach you about homonyms. Right. Like that, even less, an hour right. or less. Okay. In elementary Great. school, and definitely an hour or less. And more time with me reading to them than me worrying about them being able to produce tons and tons of stuff. Mm. And then as they intro, as middle school comes in, that's where I feel like that's where I can help them understand that they're creating their day. So I help them craft a day that works for them. And so for some kids, that means hands-on time with a parent or somebody else, or even an online teacher who's live with them for mm-hmm. probably about two to three hours a day. Okay. Yeah, that's, and then, yeah. In high school, honestly, uh, they ask questions when they need it. And if they want to learn something like right now, I'm teaching qualitative research to a, a 15 and a half year old. That's hands on. I'm I'm doing that with her. It's also my first love. I love doing that. So, you know, but are we t- doing it every day? 
No, once a week we get together, we have it like a two hour sit down. We talk about what she's going to do and then we'll come back to it next week. Right. And I, I, between then she'll ask for math help in between them. Um, yeah, it's very, very much not about the hours. And I think that's how it's fit into my incredibly busy life. People always ask, how does it fit? It fits. Right. Yeah. It just bends. It yeah. bends where it needs to bend. Yep. Now, this is particularly interesting to me because you have not only such a uh, large team of kids, but also the age range yeah. is so big. And I did this with my three. My three are only two and a half years apart. But did you find that when you were teaching one, a lot of times it was an interesting enough thing or when you're working with one or when one is working on something, other ones would just jump in and absolutely pretty much ride along and you'd say, well, I guess that's a topic that's gotten covered. Totally. (laughs) I honestly, I never did grades. The only reason my kids even know what grade they're in is because when the cashier at the you know, grocery store says, what grade are you in? It got so awkward. You just couldn't even, and I just started telling them what grade they were in because it was too much to try to explain it. Cause sometimes they would say, I don't go to school. And I'm like, right. Okay. That's not really a totally accurate picture. <laughs> yeah. Please don't say yeah, that. It, and it, that's rough because I, I hate to alarm the poor clerk who's like, what is happening? So what I thought was more effective was to tell them their grade and remind them that we're all just learning and I'm learning and their, their other parents are learning, their siblings are learning. So for a subject like chemistry, where I happen to have a partner who lives in my house and has a degree in chemical engineering that he never uses, (laughs) you know, chemistry experiments are a great time for everybody to play together. So that's just whoever wants to show up between whatever grades they are, they all show up together and their job is to ask interesting questions. And so that's always been like a five to seven year age range and all these different grades and all these different, more important than grades, just interest levels. You know, some of the kids yes. are sitting there like, I just could not care less about this. And others are super engaged. That's fine. <laughs> Sometimes I'll have them just show up and be present because they don't know that they're not interested. You know, they don't know whether they're interested or not. So right. think of it more as the age is irrelevant, but your interest level is always there. And if you're on the older side or you're on the more advanced or interested in the subject side, then your question asking is actually the act of teaching. And so I break them into the idea that they're always presenting. They're always teaching because asking questions, even if you think you know the answer, asking the question and puzzling out the answer, that helps you learn it better. So I think it's right. actually developed their, their, their learning to have this, this group environment. In fact, I think I find it more difficult to homeschool one kid than to homeschool a group. Oh, interesting. I've always observed this. I was a nanny for years and I've done other stuff. And every time kids learn from other kids so much faster, younger siblings learn from older siblings, oh, <laughs> just yeah. light speed because they're watching them. They're just so interested in what they're doing. Right, right. <laughs> and there's nothing like like teaching your younger sibling to reinforce that you've learned or to show me where you have a gap. Like right. I can instant, I can hear it across the room. I don't even need to be part of the chemistry experiment. Like, oh, oh, they're, they don't actually have that concept. They don't get it. Cool. That's a moment for me to step in or to, ju- if I'm, if I'm in my office and I'm working while they're doing that, I just jot it down on a post-it note and I stick it to my, my wall and I bring it up next time we're doing chemistry. I, it doesn't, you know, I don't have to interrupt everything that I'm doing to make sure that they're having a perfect experience because that's not life and that's not learning. Right. Right. It's so, it, it's really interesting hearing you too, because this is, it's not only bringing me back, but it's also 
reminding me now that I kind of have the lens of people that I'm talking to a lot and and the worry that I hear of people with school, it is such a different animal. Yeah. It's it's almost it's it's like trying to compare I, I don't know water with cherries. Like it's mm-hmm. just a different different day. What about things like focused work for you? Would you how did you sort of figure out a way to let the kids know that this these are times that I can't be interrupted or there's some kids that just really want your eyeballs. Yeah. Absolutely. So this comes, this actually is a great topic for me because I've always had a a lot of interests, but I also have a lot of children and they are also of interest to me. So not only do they, (laughs) do they want my eyeballs, but I find them fascinating. I love them and I find them pretty flippin' hysterical. (laughs) So, So sometimes the discipline is on my side. I need to figure out how to time block for myself how to be mm. disciplined myself, because often I found that when I was saying, I don't have time to get my work done, and I wrote a dissertation while homeschooling. So wow. When I was saying I didn't have time, kind of, I had to double check with myself. I had to get serious. I had to look inside and say, is that true? Or am I not holding the boundary? Because I don't want to do this because I don't want to do 400 pages of reading Jung right now. Or do I not want to write this essay right now? Or do I not want to make that phone call to the gas company right now? There's sort of a good out. Yeah. It, in a way they probably shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was tempting. And I like I ran a gym uh, for five years. I ran a gym. So the kids came with me to the gym. They were there with me all day from five o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night. And we had space in there where so that we had like two offices where the kids could be. And it that was very fixed, you know? So if I was on the gym floor, if I was training clients, that was very obvious to them. Like, oh, mom's busy, not available. We transitioned home. I thought (laughs) that it was going to be easier um, because the gym had been, it was hard. I loved both things, but trying to navigate, you know, the two very different experiences, homeschooling and, and I was getting my bachelor's degree at the same time and running this, this business, this physical business. But when I came home and I was here in the house full time with them, but I was running another business and then I was not running a business when I was getting a master's degree and a doctorate. And that took all of the energy I had. Mm. And they, yeah, they had to be reintroduced to what it was like for me to have to set the boundary that wasn't obvious. You know, there wasn't this, this hard line of like, well, there are people lifting weights over there. Clearly I'm not going to go interrupt. Um, So that's, that's the piece that I think is going to really speak to a lot of people right now who are worried about if I'm on Zoom or on my, you know, doing, doing meetings or have to do some focused work, the idea of introducing kids to the concept of not right now, which I would argue is something to be done on Sunday over like tea and cupcakes yeah. and a meeting once a week or every two weeks of like look ahead kind of a thing to 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 do what you were talking about, reintegrating. But to get that. But I do think that it's reasonable to ask elementary kids to respect that this isn't the right time. for. I mean, in some ways, that's what you're expecting the school day to teach them is to wait. Absolutely. And, and yet often we're Uh, Well, this is what I found that it was completely up to me how my children respected my time. 
But mm. if they spent a lot of time away from me and they developed other habits that may have been completely appropriate for the other situation, whether that was a school situation or whether that was just going to grandma's and grandma loves to spoil them and grandma loves to be with them 24 seven. So that's <laughs> awesome. And I love that for them. But this is my life as well as theirs. So they come back to this house. And that just comes down to consistent parenting and consistent boundary setting and teaching yeah. them how to respect their parent and respect themselves. And I'm not saying that's easy. In fact, I know it's super, super hard. And it can bring up a lot of guilt for those of us who were not seen as children. Like if we right. felt invisible, especially, and we want to pour our attention towards our children. Yeah, it brings tears to my eyes even to think about it. We want yeah. to see them. I get it. And yet, if we don't show them how to respect our time, what kind of people are they going to grow up to be? Well, and you're teaching them with, to respect, like by respecting our own time, we model exactly the re respectfulness for time. My sister-in-law used a great phrase once that I loved so much, which was the citizen of the family. Yeah. Yes. And, now, and telling everybody you are full citizens of the family. I don't care if you're two days old yep. <laughs> or 100 years old, you are a full citizen of this family. But that does mean you've got rights and responsibilities as well as full citizenship, which I always liked. The funny thing is that you were pointing out about the sort of sense of guilt at spending time with the kids. One of the really interesting things that I think maybe we are in an interesting position to reassure parents about is if it's a pandemic situation and you have decided to keep your kid at home and you have to work and you're worried about making all this work, you're actually spending a lot of time with your kids. Like they're getting the benefit of being with you far more than they would be if they spent uh, six or seven hours times five days a week away. Mm -hmm. So there, there is something really nice about the fact that there is this proximity yeah. to the people that we love. And when we love people, we want to spend time with them. It's also seeing each other in our fullness, which is, mm. this is a, it's a, a tiny little silver lining for those of us who are not in essential jobs. And my heart goes out to people who are and, and don't get to experience this because it's a tiny little silver lining that our children get to experience us as these whole people who have whole lives that are outside right. of them. Mind blown, right? Like yeah. if, if. If your imagination as a child, and we're all self-centered as a child, we're supposed to be. If your imagination is that your parents' whole world revolves around you, and all of a sudden, you find out that they have this whole other side of themselves where they're unrecognizable to you. Mm. To my mind, that is a huge benefit to them as growing people. And yeah. But that doesn't mean it's going to go simple at all. And I had to set up a lot of boundaries and a lot of cues for the kids in order for them ah. to understand, you know, I needed to set up habit loops for them. So if you see mom's door is closed, that means mom's in a meeting. Don't knock right. on the door. I like, don't even knock on the door. That's right. Save it up. Meeting. <laughs> save it up. Here's yeah. your, here's your notebook. Save it up. Exactly. And that, I mean, and I'm talking, yeah, at, at five years old, absolutely. Don't knock on the door. I might be in a meeting for an hour. Here's a few more things to be thinking about as you're planning what to do this fall. The first thing is don't start by overwhelming yourself. People get very invested in picking a curriculum and 
pretty much every seasoned homeschooler will tell you that you have to go through that phase, but resist spending money on it. You will be happier in the long run. Pause. It's kind of like when you're about to buy something that's like a real impulse purchase. And the very best thing that all financial people will say to do is tell yourself, I can get this tomorrow. That will be fine. Give yourself time. So one of the reasons not to do the big buying of things is because so many people end up with a beautiful, beautiful package thing that looked like it would suit their kids so perfectly and didn't. And they can't, you can't return it. So it's just something on the shelf. If you have something you're incredibly drawn to, first of all, be a little suspicious about this because you did school. You're done. You're, you're helping somebody else now. So that's the first thing to ask yourself is, do I love it for me or does it suit my kid? If it's something you'd like to experiment with, go ahead on to some homeschooling groups on Facebook or other social media. Reach out to people, free cycle, see if anybody's got it and can give you a sample or something like that. But even better is to start as you will be going on by. And that would be just, first of all, to find out what a kid your kid's age should even be doing, what they should know. There is a terrific book series. It's been out for maybe 20 years. It is perfectly lovely. And it's called What Your Whatever Grader Should Know. What your first grader should know, what your fifth grader should know. Go ahead and get that book. They're at the library. You can interlibrary loan it. Do not worry about the interruption. If your kids have been in school and it's not working for you and you have decided to homeschool, there is no critical emergency. You can take a couple days, a couple weeks and figure out what works for you. It's fine. So the first thing to do is take a deep, deep breath. Go get what your whatever grader should know. And I'm not even suggesting you read it. It's a fun series to have around. But I'm telling you to look at the table of contents. That gives you a general gist of what across the nation kids are basically working on. Because one of the things to remember when we worry very much about like our kids and their peers and stacking up, first of all, that's a level of comparison that I don't think does any of the kids a good service. But the other part of this is military kids move all the time. They move from states with the worst test scores to states with the best test scores and then over to the ones that are the same. Those are all different all over even the United States. They're often different within a state. So don't worry about that. Go look at what your fifth grader should know. Get a good idea of what's there. So that's number one. While I'm at it, what your high schooler should know. So high school gets to be incredibly beautiful and liberating because, in fact, your high schooler can finish up early. There's no law that says anything about moving the goalposts for a kid that's ready to go. So the first thing to do is to look at a GED textbook, and I think it's called something different now, but go and look at the testing books for the general equivalency exams. Not necessarily because you want your kid to take those or your kid wants to take them, but because that is what the state requires all people, all students leaving high school to be able to do to be considered competent. So 
with that bar in mind, you may have a kid who says, as I did, you know what? I just want to take it and be done with it. And she did. And then she went and became a professional athlete and coach for five years. So you may have a kid who decides to do that. It's also excellent practice as a concept of tests. But the other thing that your kid might wish to do is look at that and decide if they want to start taking community college courses, which are all available. In any case, it'll give your kid a good idea and you a good idea of where they are in that trajectory of finishing up. Colleges accept kids that have finished high school. Colleges accept kids that homeschool. Colleges accept kids that homeschool unschool, so completely unstructured. Colleges accept individuals who have completed their GED. Colleges accept kids that have gotten community college credits. Do not worry about that. You have no control over the individual kid that a college will accept. And I am telling you that colleges as an entity accept all of those things without judgment or anything else. So don't buy a curriculum before you have talked to and much more importantly, listened to and communicated with your kids. Only when you've looked at the kind of stuff that they should be doing this year-ish, only when you've talked about what kind of things high school students can be expected to know as educated citizens by the state, only when you've looked at what their interests are and the projects they would like to do this year, now you've gotten an idea of gaps. Now you've gotten an, an idea of the kind of basics that they're going to need to have access to in order to do the kind of work that you have all agreed upon as needing to be done. That's a little bit of a perfect scenario, but you are not really the teacher in homeschooling. You are the facilitator. You are the consultant when they're younger. You're the manager. You are the person who assists and provides materials so that the kids can learn. You provide a learning environment. And that is why you do not dump a lot of money on the perfect curriculum. Once you get money mixed up in it, once you get expectations mixed up in it, you have a vested interest in the kids using it. And now you're back to that point where you're no longer harnessing your kids' interests. You're just ordering them what to do. And that is a counterproductive way to homeschool. That is managing your team for failure instead of success. The way to get to this place is very much our own mindset and our own sense of what is possible here. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that most of our learning happens in the rest of our life, which means that most of our learning is experiential and comes from feedback. It comes from failure. It comes from places where you failed because you just didn't succeed, not because you were somehow graded on what you did or, or 
made to feel in some particular way, but in the failure of attempting and then having to do something else because your attempt didn't work. That is the learning environment that we set up for homeschooling. And that is why a bought curriculum, no matter how gorgeous it is, no matter whether it is based on brain science or Maria Montessori or whatever might the most the most current educational philosophies or historic use of classical education, that's the reason it's not necessarily going to be worth the money is because that will not that will become a place where you're just replicating school at home in a in an urge to make yourself feel safer in an urge to make yourself feel like the stakes are not high ps they're not you've been told that they are but they're not in an urge to make yourself feel like you won't screw up that actually is a way to screw up now that said everyone that's homeschooled has done some of that we all had closets full of stuff if we were lucky then we found that stuff at uh homeschool tag sales and we didn't drop a lot of money on it if we were somewhat less likely lucky or a little more frightened or a little more gung ho then we had a closet full of stuff that we really dearly hoped would work for somebody and didn't so before you make those purchases before you buy the metaphorical educational pair of jimmy chews before you decide for your kids instead of in collaboration with your kids, what would work best for them, then it's time to really chat with them, really talk with them, warn them first that this is going to be a meeting, that you're going to keep it fun, that you want it to be something that they truly enjoy doing. You just need to figure out where the gaps are. I got to tell you, all kids, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make a blanket statement here because I hate qualifying it because I've yet to meet any kids who are not like this. Kids really, really want the opportunity to have agency, to have some control over their lives, to build meaning in their lives, to be asked what would work for you. It is a phenomenal habit to get into. A kid that learns that at 11 is a kid that doesn't have to learn it at 35 or 40. It's all good. Start with that. Next week, we will have the second half of my conversation with Dr. Hamilton. And we'll talk about things like family meetings and the importance of mission, goals, and culture for groups. And that is phenomenally domain shiftable because all of those things are what you do in a good workplace. And all of them are training for good leadership, which is what we learn as homeschoolers and also what we enable our kids to learn as homeschooled kids. 
I think a lot of people are going through the stages of grief right now for what they thought we had in terms of school and fall and expectations and the transition that COVID has forced us all to have. We want to think that if only the virus would just magically go away, everything would be so great. And I think there's a real urge and mourning about that fact, that it's just not. And it's really understandable. But everything from here on is new. Not bad. Just new. And in the same way that we make holiday experiences or vacation experiences for our families, you can remake the learning experience and create a world that bends around you, your family's needs, and your work. And you can do it in a way that allows everybody's creativity to blossom. And wouldn't we all want happy, easier work and a family life? You can do this. I'm not saying you won't screw up. You will. I did. We all have. That's parenting. But the important thing is that screwing up isn't a bad thing. It's a human thing. And that's not a bad thing. Until next week, then, stay well and enjoy the beginning of fall. That's it for this week's episode of 9 to Thrive. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9 to Thrive, and Facebook, at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>